doesn't always work out so well, but that, uh, that hymn is a wonderful summary of the sermon text and even of the sermon itself. The book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. And hear the word of God. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the, res- by the resurrection of the dead. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you most of all, gracious Savior, even as we just sung together, that you are uh, the one who bore uh, our sin upon your body. You took our body, or you took a body like ours, in order to bear our sins on your body. And now all that is left for us to do is to just praise you for that forevermore. And we are happy to do so when we consider that we won't have to spend one second in hell because your blood has been shed. But an eternity of heaven now awaits us. And even now we begin to enjoy it because of you. And so we give you the praise and you the glory and pray that in the unfolding of the book of Romans, it would ever be an unfolding of the gospel of God, which concerns you, God's only son. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, as you know, last time we uh, introduced, we had an introductory sermon to the book of Romans. In essence, what I did there, uh, some of you told me you've never experienced this before. I don't know how helpful it was, but I preached the entire book in one sermon. Uh, and by the nature of the case, that was something of a dense sermon. But as we come now uh, to uh, the book itself and expound the verses themselves, I think we'll find a density of thought present there as well. Remember one thing though that I said in that sermon, if you took nothing away but this, I think you, you still did well. And that is the book of Romans is uh, from its inception to its close, an exposition of the doctrine of justification by faith alone all the way through. Paul is working it out in all of its dimensions. He's looking at it from different vantage points and, and with respect to different objections. And all of it leads him, uh, as we find in the end of chapter 11, to praise God. And then following that, to tell us how we are to live lives of praise to God in chapters 12 through 15. So it is a book uh, whose theme is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But uh, we are we are now beginning uh, our exposition. And. I want to do so under two main headings. The first word that we find as we begin to expound the book and the verses is Paul. And so that becomes my first point here. Who was Paul, this man who wrote the letter to the Romans? And there's no doubt that this Paul was the apostle we read about in Acts, whose ministry uh, fills up, along with Peter's, the greater portion of that book who was previously Saul of Tarsus, the man who became Paul as a result of his conversion and his calling. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. In fact, he reflects upon his conversion and his calling in explaining who he was. He is Paul, and and we also remember, as, as he makes plain, he has never met these Romans. He has not even been to Rome yet. He's introducing himself as 
Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, verse 1. And then in verse 5, he does the same thing. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for his name. He's speaking of his calling and his place among the apostles. The emphasis, first and foremost, in his description is upon his relationship, however, not to the apostles, but to Jesus Christ. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, which is, if you think of it, in, it, in itself something that is amazing. Because, again, if you think back on uh, the history recorded of his life in the book of Acts, you remember him as he was, Saul of Tarsus. You wouldn't have described Saul of Tarsus as a servant or a bondservant or a slave of Jesus Christ. Saul of Tarsus was a man who hated Jesus Christ, a man we read about in the beginning of Acts chapter 9, before we read of his conversion, who was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, even as Stephen had just been martyred for his faith in Acts chapter 8. This is something you might say that Paul rejoiced in, but the reality is it didn't satisfy him. As Saul, he was still desiring more blood to be spilled. And yet, what we discover as we continue to read that chapter is that it is that very man that Jesus Christ appears from heaven and converts to himself and enlists in his service. So that now, as Paul thought of his relationship to Jesus Christ, it was not one of enmity and hatred and murder. It was one of service. He was a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, instead of trying to stop the spread of the gospel, he had become the chief instrument of its propagation. And you remember who it was who called Paul into his service. It was Jesus Christ himself. Again, Acts chapter 9. And so this is what Paul is saying here in verse 1. That the Lord has placed him now in his service. He who was once his chief opponent, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Next, he says, an apostle. Something uh, that Paul often reflects upon is his place among the apostles. He does so extensively, for instance, in First Corinthians chapter, uh, or, or First and Second Corinthians, rather. To him, it was a great wonder that he, of all people, should have a place among them and the privilege of preaching the gospel. He who was, as he says in 1 Timothy 1.15, the chief of sinners, now was privileged to preach the gospel that saved him. He also does this in Galatians chapters 1 and 2. And as he does this, as he asserts his place as an apostle, a called apostle, that is one who was called to be an apostle, not by man, but by Jesus Christ himself directly, his, his interest is not merely to set himself forth as a marvel of grace. He who once persecuted the church now builds it. He, that was a purpose, uh, but a perhaps a greater purpose and an implied thought here when he says, Paul, the servant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, was to answer to those many people in the early church who claimed that Paul had no place among the apostles because he did not walk with our Lord in the days of his flesh. And to them, he says this. He's, uh, uh, you have an instance of this. I won't read it, but if, if you wanted a fuller testimony of this, read Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. But he says, in essence, 
uh, just in these two words, a called apostle. It was the Lord himself who called me to this task and who set me apart to preach the gospel. It was he himself who made me an apostle and not man. Paul, the apostle made by God and not by man. And it was this that made him a servant of Christ and not the servant of man. Again, a fuller testimony of that you'll find in Galatians chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. So that's what Paul is saying here. Uh, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separate into the gospel of God. I don't want to dwell on this point too much. I'm far more interested in the second point. But here let me just uh, point out one major implication of this point. And that is that Paul stood in a relationship to the Lord where he bore his authority. When we speak of the apostles, we ought to speak upon their authority. That is what an apostle is. An apostle is one who is sent. One who is sent with a specific purpose. Jesus sent out his apostles. And as he did so, he clothed them with his authority. Authority not only, you remember, to cast out demons in his name, but an authority to build the church. An authority to preach the gospel. An authority to write the books of the New Testament. And Paul was obviously highly instrumental in all of these. In building the church, in preaching the gospel, in writing the books of the New Testament. So many of the books of the New Testament were written by Paul. And so this is why we ought to listen to Paul. I was just made aware. I thought this argument had fallen out of fashion. And yet again, still people are saying, or still people are setting Paul in contrast to Jesus. But I'm saying that we ought to treat his words as bearing the very authority of Jesus. When Paul is an apostle, a called apostle speaks to the church in the, in the letters of the New Testament. He is speaking to the church with the full authority of Jesus Christ himself. Or if you prefer, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to us through him. And so there's no point in saying... Again, I thought people had stopped saying this, but apparently they still are. And I doubt they'll ever stop. Well, this is Paul and not Jesus. And so I'm interested in the Gospels where Jesus is speaking. But even then, you don't know what you're saying because the apostles and not Jesus were, were responsible for writing the Gospels as well. Every single book of the New Testament bears the authority and the stamp of the apostles. Either directly or indirectly. And that is because that's what our Lord wanted. He told the, the disciples and the apostles that when he left, he would give them this task and invest them with the authority to do so, to speak in his name and to write the pages of the New Testament. Paul himself reflects on this when he says to the Thessalonians, you received uh, the word or the preaching of mine as it really is the very word of God. He commends them for that. It wasn't the word of man. It was the word of God. And by faith, they were able to see this. And what I'm saying is that we ought to do the same. As we begin to unfold the teaching of the book of Romans, we ought to recognize who it is who is speaking to us. It is God through his apostles. It is the very word of God. And so we ought to receive it as the Thessalonians did, as the very word of God and nothing else and nothing less than that. That must be our fundamental conviction about this book, every single word of it, all of its teaching, all of its doctrine, all of its exhortation. Otherwise, I don't see any point in what we're doing here. But the really big point comes next in these opening verses. 
where Paul introduces his great theme and his great reason for writing this letter. He wanted as a called apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ who is set apart to expound the gospel of God. That's the second point, the gospel of God. He says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. It's the gospel of God that in verses two through four, he begins to expound. We ought to recognize that Paul's apostleship had no value apart from that. Nor does this letter have any value apart from that. The whole letter is about the gospel of God. What can we say about it? Well, what does Paul say about it? The first thing is obviously, as I began to stress last time, that as the gospel of God, he's already indicating something to us about the gospel. He is indicating the fact that the gospel is something that God does. It is an an announcement and a proclamation of his actions, specifically with reference to guilty sinners. You see, it is not first and foremost an announcement of what we must do to be saved. That's something that comes later as a result of the preaching of the gospel and something that becomes clear in light of the preaching of the gospel. But the preaching of the gospel is not what we must do to be saved. It is rather what God has done in order to save us. And then having seen that, it becomes clear that our job is not to do anything to be saved, but rather to believe what God has done in order to save us. So when Paul says he was separated unto the gospel of God, he is saying that God set him apart to preach this message, to announce the good news of what God has done. To declare and tell men how it is they must be saved by God. Well, what has God done? And the first thing to see here is uh, Paul is saying, verse 2, that God has done something that he has said all along he was going to do. Verse 2, this is one of the fundamental assertions of Romans. God was doing something new, yes, but it wasn't new in the sense that the idea was new. Even in the Old Testament, you find God predicting this very thing would occur, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel of God, in other words, is found in the Old Testament. It's just found by way of anticipation or by way of prophecy. And the Old Testament is full of prophecy. Prophecy is God's speech, by the way. He says, which God promised before. God speaking through the prophets, just as God was speaking now through the apostle. God was promising something long ago through the prophets of the Old Testament that he was going to do. And now Paul is saying that God has done it. Ever since Adam fell into sin, God has been telling man to look forward to something. To the accomplishment of something that God would perform. To the coming seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. The Proto-Euangelion, Genesis 3.15, the first announcement of the gospel. Now that begins in Genesis 3, the earliest chapters of the Bible. But then we find it again and again in what God tells his people throughout the Old Testament. He tells Abraham about his seed. The coming seed, the coming savior. And then when Jacob declares the prophecy concerning Judah at the end of Genesis in Genesis 49. 
Then Moses, the prophet, speaks of this as well, of one who would come in the likeness of Moses, a prophet like Moses, only greater, that Israel must look forward to. Following that, you have the work of uh, a class that we would call the prophets themselves, though these earlier ones were prophets as well. Those whom we characteristically think of prophets, for instance, the prophet Nathan, what he says to David about his son sitting upon his throne forever, Second Samuel 13, or what Isaiah says about the coming Messiah. If you look at the work and the message of the prophets, they all said the same thing. They all looked forward to the coming of this king and this kingdom and the coming salvation. They all spoke of the coming Messiah in their own way. Each emphasized different things about him, but the message was the same. They were all talking about the same person and the same event. It is in this sense, as I say, that the whole of the Old Testament Holy Scriptures were forward looking. They were preoccupied with what God was going to do. And what God said was going to happen. And this this thing that Paul was set apart to preach, the gospel of God, is what the Old Testament scriptures promised long ago would happen. And now Paul is saying, along with the apostles, that it has happened. Well, what has happened? And as you come to verse 3, you begin to see what has happened. You discover the great emphasis of this gospel of God concerned the Son of God. Separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son. Now, let me notice here a disagreement that I have with the King James or the New King James. And let me read uh, what the Greek would actually reflect. And I think the newer translations do a better job of yielding this. You notice it says, concerning his son, again, in the King James and the New King James, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was, that isn't actually accurate. And it it fails to bear the true emphasis of the text. The actual Greek reads something like this. And again, I think this is what you have, for instance, in the ESV. Simply concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, colon, Jesus Christ our Lord. So instead of that coming at the beginning, it comes at the end, Jesus Christ our Lord. That not only reflects the order of the words, but it reflects the proper emphasis of what Paul is saying. And so it's wrong if you're looking at the King James or the New King James to say the gospel concerns his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's to get ahead of ourselves. First, we must simply say, as Paul does in the Greek, as a bare assertion that the gospel of God concerns God's son. In other words, when we look at these Old Testament scriptures and the word of prophecy, we notice the emphasis on the coming Messiah. But the question which we had and which the Old Testament saints had and even the angels, who was this to be? We know he was to be David's son, but also David's Lord. And how was that possible? Well, from the standpoint of the Old Testament, it wasn't entirely clear. But as you come to the New Testament, suddenly it becomes clear. This person was to be none other than God's son, who was and is an eternal person and who was with God in the beginning, but who was also God himself. John chapter one, verse one. So I'm saying that the first assertion here about the gospel of God promised long ago by the prophets 
is that it concerns the very Son of God, who is an eternal person in God himself. We will later see that he's none other than the Lord, Jesus Christ, the Lord. But again, that comes last. It doesn't come in here yet. For now, it is simply that the gospel concerns God's son, his only son, his only begotten son, who dwelt with the father in the beginning, who lived ever in the bosoms of bosom of the father, the one by whom God made the world. But you see, as soon as we begin to think of him like that and to see him like that, we realize that so long as he stayed there with God in heaven in the bosom of the father, there was no way he could help us. There was no use he could offer to man and there was no way for him to fulfill the prophecy concerning him. And so Paul, like John, at the beginning of his gospel, tells us after first making a statement about his eternity as God's son, his only son, his only begotten son from all eternity. That it was this person who came down from heaven and dwelt among us, none other than the son of God. Which is what Paul tells us next when he says the gospel of God concerning his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. And the first thing we notice here as we look at this phrase in verse 3 is the way it is balanced and contrasted by a kind of parallelism with what comes next in verse 4. He was born of the seed of David according to the flesh on the one hand and he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead on the other And seeing this helps us to understand what he means in each phrase. Obviously, they're meant to balance and contrast each other. Paul, in these two verses, is describing two sides of his existence, the existence of the Son of God, and two sides of his coming into this world. He was always God's Son. But look at what happened to him, or rather, look at what God did by and through him. The gospel of God, which concerns his son, begins with this, that he was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. In other words, if we were to turn to the first pages of the New Testament in the gospel of Matthew, for instance, we would find there that he was actually born of the Virgin Mary out of the line of David. That is how the son of God came into this world. It wasn't by some mighty descent from heaven. Or some powerful manifestation as, for instance, with the angels. But rather, his, uh, his journey into this world was through the humblest path. It was by appearing in the form of a servant. It was by taking on the likeness of sinful flesh, though without actually becoming sinful. Here he appeared and really was one like us, a real human being. He was the true seed of David, fit to take his throne, which is why the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, for instance, begin as they do. Not just with an account of his birth, but with his lineage and the genealogies which they give. Here was one who came indeed out of the line of David in fulfillment of the prophecies. In other words, God hadn't forgotten what he had promised long ago. And this person, this human being, the seed of David, born of the Virgin Mary, is the person we read about in the gospel, the one foretold long ago in the prophets. And as we come to the gospels, what we find is an account of his life, not just the beginnings of it as he was born in that humble manger by the Virgin Mary, but we discover especially an account of his ministry as he dwelt among us. The gospels are an account of the man, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the descendant of David. And frankly, if you read these Gospels, his divinity shines but dimly. In fact, his favorite way of referring to himself was not as the son of God, but it was as the son of man. A title by which he refers not so much to his relationship with God, but his relationship to us. What his coming into this world meant in terms of that. The relationship he bore to humanity. He came into the world to take to himself our infirmities and to bear our sicknesses as Isaiah had prophesied. He came as the angel announced at his birth to Mary to save his people from their sins. And as Emmanuel, which means God with us, to dwell with his people. So let us see Jesus as one like us, a real human being. Let us see his true humanity at his birth. And in his life as he dwelt among us as one who was truly like us. And especially at his death. As we think of the cross, what do we see there? Well, what we see is a man dying. Not only that, but look at the burial and the resurrection. These are things that are possible only for one who is truly human. And so let us see this about the gospel of God. First, that it concerned God's son, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He was a truly fleshly person. But that only tells one half of the story. And for all that it accounts for in the gospel, if that's all we had, we would have nothing. I mean, if we only had the humanity of Jesus Christ and his relationship to King David. For he was also, as we've already seen, the very son of God. And if that divine person became man by being born of the seed of David by the uh, by the Virgin Mary, then he was nothing less than the son of God in the flesh. But as we read in the Gospels. And as we see how men and women related to him and received him in the Gospels, it is clear that that glory, the glory which he possessed alongside the father in heaven, was greatly concealed I almost said diminished, but that wouldn't be entirely true. It wasn't diminished by his incarnation, but it was greatly concealed. Never was he anything less than the son of God as he dwelt among us. But in becoming man, in taking this form of a servant, in agreeing to dwell among us as one of us, his glory was, again, greatly concealed under the veil of his flesh. It's true at times it burst forth. By its own invincible power, as for instance, at the transfiguration, where his glory shone brightly and almost blinded the disciples. And they beheld there the son of God and God, the father testified to his relationship to him. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And also we could say that anyone who has faith the size of a grain of mustard seed can read these gospels and see and behold the glory of the son of God, even as it laid Beneath the veil of his flesh. But still we ought to recognize. That as he appeared as the seed of David and dwelt among us. There was an element of concealment involved in his becoming man. And this was let us see something that was intentional. Jesus didn't want his disciples to see the full truth about him right away. He preferred rather for there to be a kind of gradual realization about him. 
As you read the Gospels, that's what you notice. They were in confusion. They didn't get it all at once. And it was only as his glory shone forth brightly, not at the transfiguration, but at the resurrection, that they came to a full assurance and saw with clarity who he truly was. Then they became persuaded and convinced that this was the Son of God. They understood They also understood at long last the relationship the Son of God bore to the humanity of the Son of Man. It's true that Peter had earlier declared that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew chapter 16. But even then, if you keep reading the chapter, it's clear that he had his doubts because he couldn't see how it was right for the Son of God to die. So just as soon as he professes Christ, he begins to deny him and Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. Oh, but look at him after the resurrection and especially at Pentecost. He brings it all together. He understands how the son of man was the son of God and how this fact became especially apparent, not so much in his death, but in his resurrection. Peter preaching in Acts chapter two, the sermon which I read earlier, or at least the summary of the sermon, which I read earlier. And there you notice, uh, without me going back and reading it, the same exact features and the same emphasis. He leads with the thought, Jesus of Nazareth, the man who dwelt among us, the man who performed many miracles, the man whom you crucified. The man, Jesus, is he whom God has raised up. And what does this tell us about him? What does it testify to clearly? Or in other words, what is God declaring to us by raising Jesus from the dead? That this man whom you have crucified, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is both Christ and Lord. That's how he finishes. This man whom you have crucified, Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. He is the one, Peter says, who is now seated at the right hand of God. The man, Jesus, is both Lord and Christ. That was Peter's gospel. The gospel that became clear to him as a result of the resurrection. And it was Paul's gospel as well. This is what Paul is saying to us when he says on the other side of the parallelism, he was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. He was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. He is not saying that his resurrection was a powerful declaration, though it was. He is saying rather that at the resurrection, God was declaring something about his son. Something that was not entirely clear in the days of his flesh, but now something that was undeniably clear through the resurrection. And that is the fact that Jesus is God's son. And now you see, look carefully at the words God's son with power. God was declaring by the resurrection that Jesus of Nazareth was his son with power. In other words, there is something new, something added to his status as the son of God. Now that he has become the seed of David, now that he has suffered and paid the penalty for sin. Now he is invested as the God man. And as our great high priest and high heavenly king, the son of David and the son of God with a new authority, the son of God with power. You remember, that's what Jesus says at the end of the gospel of Matthew. All authority on heaven and on earth has been invested in me. He declares to them as the resurrected Lord so that it is not simply enough now to refer to him as God's son. 
that simply fails to take into account all that he has done and that God has done by him and for him and what is true of him now, the gospel of God. Is that by which God declares this about him by his resurrection, by exalting him to the highest place and placing in his hands all dominion and authority that he is the son of God with power. I won't trouble you with the text. We read uh, Acts chapter 2. I referred to Matthew 28. There's Philippians 2. You could go on and on. You could compile all the texts. 1 Corinthians 15. And recognize that this is the constant assertion of the New Testament. That he who took the humble path, Jesus of Nazareth, is now seated in the highest place. He assumes it is true the place he had before. Only now with a new authority. What was clear about him in the days of his flesh, though somewhat obscured by his fleshly appearance, now by his resurrection is made plain in an unmistakable way that he is the very son of God. And added to this is the fact that he is the son of God with power. Now that is a thought. I'll leave it at that. But that is a thought that I hope to unfold a little more in the coming sermon. But let me just say this. That this is the gospel that Paul is so eager to preach and to expound and to unfold. The message that we find in the gospels, which he's summarizing here in verses 3 and 4. The gospel of God which concerns his son, who was born of the virgin according to the seed of David, who was raised by the power of God. There's so much he's going to say about this gospel. And we will see... How justification and righteousness and faith are the big categories of the book of Romans. But before any of us ever come to see how it is that I as a sinner am made right with God. The answer is I'm justified by faith in Jesus Christ. By believing the gospel. But before we even come to that point. Let us see as Paul says that the gospel of God concerns not ourselves. Not at least primarily. But that it concerns. It is about. His son, his only son, his only begotten son. And that this is the one whom Paul was called and set apart to preach. Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see the final phrase that comes at the end, at least in the Greek. Jesus Christ, our Lord. The gospel is about him. Jesus, the man. Who was he? Well, he was God's son come in the flesh according to the seed of David. And as such, he was also the Lord's Christ or anointed. He was the long-awaited Messiah who would save his people from their sins. Jesus Christ. Yes, but he is also Lord. Jehovah, Yahweh. Don't forget about that either. And see that especially now that he is raised. Again, as Peter says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. But finally... Let me notice one little word in that phrase. The importance of the personal pronoun. Our. Jesus Christ. Our Lord. And let me just ask you in closing. Is he that to you? Can you speak about him in this personal way? Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Have you seen your need of him? And his perfect willingness to be not only Lord and Christ. But that to you. Jesus Christ. Our Lord. Here indeed is the message of the gospel, not just what God has done, but what he has done for us. Yes, it concerns his son primarily, 
But in that way, you see, it also concerns us because he's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Do you see that? And do you realize that all who call upon him will be saved, as Paul says in Romans chapter 10, verse uh, verses 12 and 13? And that, as he says in verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so as we begin the book of Romans and as we begin to unfold and expound this gospel of God, let us see what the gospel is and whom it concerns. The gospel of God concerns, Paul says, his son who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And let us now come to the table.